Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. The past week was momentous for those awaiting the enactment of a legal framework for data protection in India. India's parliament passed the Digital Personal Data Protection Act 2023 and the law has now also received the assent of the president of India. This law has been enacted after more than 5 years of deliberations and consultations. Multiple committees have submitted reports on the proposed legislation and three previous drafts of the legislation have been circulated in public for consultation. This law for the first time creates a framework for protecting individual data privacy. All businesses collecting and using personal data will have to comply with the law across the economy. Consumers will enjoy certain rights with regard to their data. A data protection board will ensure that data is stored safely and issue penalties for non-compliance with the law. At the same time, the law provides exemptions and exceptions that some critics are unhappy with. and for others consumers do not have enough rights and businesses do not have enough obligations but even if the law is imperfect it is a significant milestone in india's policy framework for regulating technology the law will impose costs on all businesses across the economy and the question is whether the gains with regard to data protection and privacy are worth it to unpack these issues joining us today is mr rahul mathur Rahul is a partner in Trilegal, one of India's leading law firms, and heads the technology, media, and telecommunications practice of the firm. Over his career, he has advised on some of the largest technology and telecom transactions in the country, and he is an expert on technology, data protection, digital finance, cryptocurrencies, e-commerce, and related subjects. Rahul has advised the government on the data privacy law, and also served on the Chris Kopalakrishnan Committee on Non-Personal Data. He has authored numerous articles and thought pieces on various topical issues relating to computers, the internet and other new technologies. His book Privacy 3.0: Unlocking Our Data-Driven Future addresses the challenges of regulating privacy in the big data world. Rahul, welcome to Interpreting India. Thanks Anirudh, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Rahul, let's start with discussing the journey that this legislation has gone through. It's been more than 5 years i think 6 years since the patta sami judgment came in and we've seen a significant shift in approach in how the data privacy law was initially envisaged and the final version of the law so can you give us a background on what exactly this law went through what were the main points of contention and how this law was eventually shaped Yeah so I guess uh, history uh, always depends on where you start counting it and uh, when you say 5 or 6 years I have to challenge you because um, for me uh, my journey with the data protection law started over a decade ago because um, uh, shortly after uh, the other program was announced there was a attempt by the government at that point in time uh, to enact a data protection law and I was actually personally involved in drafting uh probably the very first version of it somewhere around 2011 2012 uh, and then we had the justice ap shah committee uh, which came out with a report and i know that you know, some of the work that i did had to be had to incorporate some of that work so actually this journey is like over a decade long um if you think about people who've been thinking about this in the space uh, for that long and then in that arc if you look at the uh, evolution of the law i'd say the first draft that we came up with was a very simple uh, draft because your data protection was a relatively new concept uh, in the country and quite frankly in the rest of the world it was also before big data and so data protection was a very different type of an, an animal at that point in time but then when the puttaswami judgment happened and uh, the justice shri krishna uh, committee report came out uh, that was in 2018 we were already in the midst of big data and we realized that this required um you know some uh uh significant 
regulation, uh, or at least that was the thinking at that time. It was very much uh, influenced by the fact that in 2016, Europe had um, enacted the general data protection uh, regulation. And uh, GDPR, of course, came into force in 2018. But it was very much in uh, everyone's mind that this is now the new gold standard as to how uh, data protection uh, regulation needs to, you know, what it needs to look like. And so you see that the 2018, 2019 uh, drafts and then, uh, you know, the JPC version, they all sort of uh, emphasized this you know, very, very heavy regulatory um, uh, focus. And uh, if you then contrast the latest draft um, that uh, was was sort of produced in 2022 and then this draft that has finally been passed, I think it's a it's it's sort of going back to that very simple uh, style, uh, of course with with modifications. But um, I think there's been a bit of a pendulum swing uh, away from the uh, complex uh, regulation and and uh, compliance that uh, the uh, the the sort of Justice Shri Krishna draft and its offspring uh, produced to something simpler. Just a just an example of that is the fact that I think in in the Justice Shri Krishna draft and you know, the eventual JPC draft there was something like uh, ten to fourteen different types of things that needed to be notified uh, uh, before you obtained consent. And uh, now there's essentially just Two things, um, which is what is the data that you're collecting? What's the personal data you're collecting? What is the purpose for which it's being used? There are two other notifications in terms of grievance redressal and things like that, but those are more sort of standard format type uh, notifications. Um, and I think that uh, is sort of uh, something that is the hallmark, I think, of this this latest version. Yeah, thank you for correcting me on the origin of the discussion and the debate. I think uh, I'd forgotten the initial impetus for this and i think there's a very interesting symbiotic journey that aadhar and also the increase in broadband penetration in india has had combined with this discussion on data protection and i'd love to hear your reflections on this you know that's the, that's the uniquely indian part of this um, because everything else is India, uh, as part of a global economy that is increasingly uh, seeing data as you know very uh, uh, relevant to the way in which uh, the world works. I mean, if you just if you just look around the world, there's of course there's a there's the move, uh, there's the rise of social media, but there's also uh, e-commerce and there's uh, ride hailing and the sharing economy, and so there's a everyone starts to see um, that side of things, uh, but you know immediately. Side by side with that, you uh, realize the harms that can uh, be caused uh, as a result of this. And so a lot of the regulation around the world tends to orient towards uh, completely tamping down on uh, this explosion of data because um, there are, in, in, in the minds of some, the, the risks are not worth the, the reward. But, you know, in the Indian context, it's actually very different because India... Uh, there's this uh, famous saying uh, that uh, India became data rich before it became economically wealthy uh, and that data was um, being seen as the way to uh, uh, help India in a sense leapfrog stages of development uh, to become uh, economically wealthy using data. Uh, and so I think in India, there was this, uh, this, I guess everyone recognized that there were uh, risks, but there was also this need to uh, empower people uh, with their data, uh, and so I think you see some of that reflected once again uh, in the latest draft. Because I think the emphasis is uh, to make sure that in our uh, attempt to you know uh, reduce the harms, reduce the risks that people can suffer, uh, we should at the same time not overburden uh, Indian businesses with compliance obligations, and that extends to other aspects of the law where, uh, uh, you know, there are discussions around uh, consent manager and things like that, I guess we can come to in, in more detail. Uh, but that is a hat tip to uh, this entire ecosystem uh, that's built up in India around uh, digital public infrastructure. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think that certainly played a part. Uh, I think uh, the government recognizes that a lot of Indian development is still reliant on the way in which this digital public in infrastructure ecosystem uh, can play out. And so it doesn't want, it recognizes you know, the, the, the risk of going down the GDPR route because that could constrain some of these innovations. Uh, and so it tries to, to strike that balance between the two. 
Yeah, and I think there are actually three uh, parallel uh, interests that are operating here. And I think we see that very clearly in how the different versions of the bill have worked out. One is, of course, what level of compliance do you want to impose on business and what is the right level of privacy protections related to that? The second is, of course, this, or the third, I would say, is the actual issue of how the state can use data for welfare purposes and for purposes like pandemics, epidemics, and so on. And I think all three of these issues, the issue of individual privacy, the issue of compliance on businesses, and uh, the issue of state use of data, I think there's been a continuous uh, give and take on this. And I think we've finally seen some kind of balance in this version of the law. So uh, let me move to the actual working of the law and just pick your brains on what is the broad structure that this bill proposes? How is it supposed to operationalize? What are the key components? Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's not different in, um, you know, material uh, respects from what you'd expect of any data protection law. You know, it has, it's very much oriented towards the sort of notice and consent uh, framework. Uh, it does differ from previous versions in that it brings in this concept of legitimate uh, uses of data. Um, and uh, you know, in that context, it, it allows for people who are looking to voluntarily provide their data. Um, uh, it gives some certain benefits to those, uh, or rather it, 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 it says that you don't necessarily need uh, consent in order to uh, uh, process that data. Um, but that's a very narrow definition. It's not the legitimate interest definition that you expect in GDPR. Uh, so it's other than this, it's it's a very heavily you know notice and consent type uh, framework, um, and then you'll see all the other rights um, articulated in different ways: the uh, retention restriction rights, the data minimization rights, uh, purpose specification, um, use limitation. All of these standard. Uh, uh, you know, data protection rights from around the world are, are all uh, embodied in in this law, not in the way that you would expect to see it, but it's certainly it's certainly there. And then it has a bunch of rights that um, the data principles have. Those are the standard rights of access, uh, correction, erasure, grievance redressal. It adds a new right of nomination, which is uh, allowing uh, data principles to nominate uh, someone to act on behalf of uh, their their data. It also adds this new concept of duties, which is a little unusual uh, in the data data protection context. I don't think any other legislation, to the best of my knowledge, has uh, imposes a duty on um, the the person to whom that personal data uh, pertains. Uh, But I think when I spoke with um, uh, the minister as part of the consultation, he indicated that, yeah, this is more a... Uh, you know, you've got to come to the courts with your hands clean kind of um, concept. Uh, and he's at pains to to point out that uh, you know, the fact that you haven't performed your duty as a data principal is not going to affect your right to a, a remedy or a redress. Uh, but it is worth noting that this is a, uh, it, it, you know, it does place some sort of a burden uh, on uh, the data principal. You know, some of these duties are the duty not to impersonate and, and things like that, which I can see where they're going uh, going with this. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, if you think about it, it's uh, uh, a stripped-down version of a uh, data protection law from anywhere in the world. Um, but it does have a few nuances that are, that are different. And I think uh, that's where uh, some of the, uh, the discussion uh, and, I guess, concerns uh, arise. But, but you know, I, I think that uh, for the large part, this is a – you'll find – though not in the detail that one would expect um, all of these things already implicit in the law. Yeah, so on that point about this being much more uh, bare bones, I think there are two different points of view. One is that one is a far more pessimistic aspect of this, which is this is somehow going to foster a kind of wild, wild west, unregulated behavior where firms are basically going to comply for the heck of it and get away with it. And the other more optimistic view is that look, we are in the early days of technology and technology adop- adoption in India. And this is actually the way to create some kind of innovation in having different practices around data privacy. 
and this could actually eventually coalesce around some minimum standards that would you know, then prove to be the ground for a more detailed regulatory framework. Where do you come in on this? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I hate to get drawn into these uh, binaries, but, you know, because I, I think um, it's it's important to first recognize that uh, we are at a very, very nascent stage uh, in uh, data protection regulation in the country. Uh, we've had something called the uh, the data protection rules, uh, sensitive personal data and information rules that are part of the Information Technology Act. And so you can argue that we've had some experience with it, but as a matter of fact, there's no institutional uh, capacity to regulate uh, under that uh, regulation. So we literally have no regulators in a country with 1.3, 1.4 billion people uh, for data. And so um, if we're going to go to a GDPR style uh, framework, uh, uh, you know, it's zero to a hundred or 200 kilometers from a standing stop. And that's almost impossible. Uh, you've got to remember that GDPR came into force after data protection institutions existed in Europe for over two decades. Um, and so it's actually easy to go to that level of complexity because it's just a slight ramp up of what was, uh, what everyone was already used to at that time. That's not the case in India. So I think, um, that we need to have some sort of a simple uh, regulation to start with. Um, but I, I don't rule out uh, the need for tinkering with it to make it uh, more robust where it's required. And now on top of that, if you uh, layer on on the, the points that you were mentioning, which is you know the innovation side of things and things like that, uh, I think that's also important. And so if we've got some amount of flexibility, um, uh, and so, you know, I, I know that it's likely to be a wild west that there would be a minimal amount of things that people have to do, and then they can really um, go wild around the edges. But if you think about the situation that exists right now, that's exactly what the situation uh, that exists right now, because there are no regulations; people can do whatever they want. And so, I think a small measure of regulation to start with is really the way to do it, um, and then. I think we can ratchet on uh, different levels of regulation where it's required. Uh, and that I think would be a more sensible way uh, uh, to go about it. I think, um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's also perhaps an unfair characterization to say that um, there isn't compliance. There is compliance. I think the, uh, some of the provisions of this law are actually quite stringent, uh, perhaps more stringent than, uh, I would have even liked uh, for this stage of, of evolution. Uh, retention, for example, there is almost a automatic uh, deletion obligation that's been imposed uh, through this law, which no other law in the, in the world has. Uh, and I think if I were to advise my clients, the only way that they can safely comply is actually just not to hold the data uh, after they've used it. Uh, and that is a very, very big shift uh, from the way in which people think about data protection. Uh, and compliance, and if we can achieve that, uh, you know that sort of an outcome, uh, we would arguably uh, be way more um, successful uh, in coming up with uh, the data protection outcomes than even countries like like Europe. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I would actually like to take a look at this um, uh, as it evolves. Uh, because there are elements in this that if uh, the data protection board actually enforces quite strictly could have very, very different and, and uh, beneficial outcomes uh, for data protection compared to what uh, Europe and the rest of the world um, are adopting as their models. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And something else that you said is also, I think, worth reiterating, which is the point of complexity acting as a constraint on our ability to regulate properly. And I think the point that you made that regulation in the EU has evolved over a period of two decades and and those are still the institutions that we are familiar with, but they actually have a lot of data protection legislation and jurisprudence going back even further. And I think when you look at a law like GDPR, it's basically the culmination of all of that taking place over 30, 40 years. And we've not had that. And I think when we look at the law, if we don't look at some of the underlying capacities and institutions that go into creating that law, for example, 
the entire ecosystem of lawyers, judges, specialists who understand how these things work. And if we were to implement something as expansive as our initial draft, our earlier drafts, it would really act as a serious constraint on on our ability to actually implement that draft. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I mean, you're absolutely right. I just mentioned the regulator, but there is a whole ecosystem that we have to keep in mind. There are no lawyers in the country who know uh, how any of these provisions need to be uh, implemented. And that's, in a sense, part of the challenge with uh, coming up with the, with the law in the first place, because in, in many of our consultations, uh, I could see that the, that the government had, you know, put something in, brought something in from GDPR, but didn't fully understand how that would relate uh, to the Indian context or or even the modern context. I mean, you've got to, you've got to also, to the point of complexity, uh, you've got to also recognize that uh, GDPR is actually not doing that well uh, in the very complex modern world that we have. I think the complexities are, in a sense, binding uh, Europe uh, in ways that it, it that some businesses in Europe are actually rebelling against. Uh, you know, for instance, this current uh, AI generative AI boom. Um, Europe and Italy, in particular, ended up banning uh, ChatGPT uh, just because it didn't comply with data protection regulations. Uh, and uh, people are are, are uh, you know concerned about this. Uh, Threads, when it launched around the world, uh, didn't launch in uh, in Europe because of the fear. And I, I believe it's still not uh, available in Europe because of the fear of the new Digital Services Act coming in. So you, you know you can see how excessive regulation in Europe. We can actually see live examples of how uh, very very strong regulation in Europe is coming in the way of innovation and. Um, new sort of products uh, coming into the market. And that's not what India as a country that's just starting out on this journey wants uh, to uh, to do to itself. And, and so I think that's really something we've got to uh, keep in mind. No, absolutely. And uh, let me just now move to some of the specific provisions of the bill and pick your brains on this. So one uh, point that you alluded to is that some rights and uh, obligations have been reduced. Uh, what do you make of this? So, for example, there's a right to data portability that was there in the previous drafts. It was there. It's there in the GDPR. Uh, and that's been reduced. And the other shift is also in the in the framing of the provisions itself. The earlier versions were far more prescriptive, gave much more details in how to actually implement some of this uh, stuff. And this law actually does away with it. So, how do you make sense of some of these? Yeah, I'm actually disappointed with the fact that we don't have uh, right to data portability. I think that's um, one of the misses uh, of uh, the law in the consultation. Um, I actually mentioned this point. I said, you know, we've got to find some way to bring that back. Um, in many ways, that is a provision that actually aligns with a lot of the DPI framework that uh, we discussed earlier, which is, uh, you know, it's central to the, to the concept that an individual has a right over their data, no matter where that data is, even if that data is under the control of um, some data fiduciary, uh, the right of data portability allows that individual to say, you know, give me that data. Uh, right now, all the individual can do is uh, figure out whether that data exists or, uh, and if it does, whether it's, uh, up to date, uh, and, uh, if they want, they can, they can delete it. Uh, so that's about it, but that's actually not as effective as, uh, it should be. What we really want is the ability to take that data out of that data silo so that, you know, I can actually have it in my own possession, um, or, uh, instruct the, the data fiduciary to transfer to some other data fiduciary so that I can, uh, you know, swap my service provider as it were. Now that's a really powerful, uh, right. And I think particularly in the modern world of social media and, and things like that, it is uh, a right that exists. I think, you know, arguably India is moving towards this, um, this DEPA framework, uh, DEPA that is D-E-P-A, not D-A-T-A, um, where, uh, there, you know, we're trying to set up institutions that will manage this portability, uh, through uh, consent managers and things like that. And, and, you know, consent managers have uh, a, a place front and center uh, in the law. Uh, so I think that's, in a sense, slightly mitigating it. But um, I still think that the, 
that the right to data portability uh, ought to have been there uh, in the, in the final draft. But in terms of the prescriptive nature of the regulations, I think um, this is absolutely the right direction uh, to remove some of that um, prescriptive. Uh, uh, obligations, as it were, on how uh, these rights are to be enforced, um, uh, because I because I think you know it 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 will vary in the Indian context. I think there are many nuances uh, in the Indian context that we will just have to see how how it evolves. Um, so I, I think it's it's probably best to just uh, articulate you know, the the provision. The, the The challenge with that is it's a it's a it's a heavy burden on the regulator or the government, as it were. Uh, to try and uh, uh, come up with the the prescriptions that are that I guess are are going to be necessary from time to time. Uh, if you don't if you don't state up front how things are going to be done, then you as the government will have to almost set up an institutional framework to issue those uh, those, those clarifications, guidelines, regulations um, as and when required. And and you'll also have to do it sectorally. You'll have to. Uh, you know, it, because they are very slightly per sector, so that is also something uh, that I think uh, the government needs to needs to think about, and and this goes to that whole institutional capacity. So you know, I, I just uh, hope that we will build this slowly but surely, but not so slowly. I think we're going to need to build this fairly quickly, and and I think that really is where it's going to all be interesting. Yeah, and while you were talking, I was also thinking about this added complexity in India, which is that a large number of our businesses are actually very small. And so you've not just got to think sectorally, but also in terms of what is the level of risks that different kinds of businesses actually pose in terms of data privacy and whether you can actually start out with a heavily prescriptive law from the get-go, which might not actually attain that desired level of suitability for all kinds of businesses across the economy. Yeah, and that's complicated by the fact that uh, in particularly a startup ecosystem, we have some very small businesses that could have an outsized impact. These are uh, businesses that could, uh, you know, do today, uh, even though they're relatively small, affect uh, millions of people. And as you're saying, uh, there are many SMEs that, you know, they do deal with personal data, um, but that's not their main business. Uh, And so do you want to just crush them with uh, compliance? Uh, when you know, quite frankly, the the risk is relatively small and and minus. These are these are really difficult uh, challenges uh, to deal with. I don't think Europe ever had to deal with uh, with things like this because one, Europe, you know, population wise is is very very different uh, from India, and two, uh, it uh, took a really long time. So you know, they very very slowly eased into the big data world. Um, I think they they would say that they gotten faster than they would like, but uh, still, if you just look at the whole arc of regulation, uh, it happened over a period of time, and we just don't have that luxury. Uh, so these are difficult things to put into a sort of a prescriptive law up front. Uh, one of the things you alluded to is about consent managers, and that's something, again, of an oddity in the Indian law. Can you talk a little bit about this? You've been working on this for a while, so could you just explain what this is? Yeah, this is this is a, a, a hat tip to uh, India's data empowerment and protection architecture that um, is manifest in the financial services uh, sector through the account aggregator framework. Uh, this is a, a an institutional uh, arrangement whereby all financial institutions connect to uh, the sort of central uh, consent managers that. Um, uh, in a sense, intermediate data transfers uh, by separating the consent flow from the data flow. So it's a typically it's a it's a very uniquely Indian uh, innovation. But um, the idea is being um, discussed around the world. Uh, people are are interested uh, in this idea because it has many inherent uh, privacy benefits. Uh, and so I think. Um, in the earlier drafts, I think in all the drafts, uh, there was a reference to a consent manager, but that was more like a, a sort of a, a, a separate, different way of managing uh, consent flows um, or managing the process of consent. In this final draft, and it, it uh, is only uh, until it's only when it sort of came up in the final draft, uh, uh, it has been elevated to the status almost, I would say, of a of a separate type of institutional actor. Uh, so you have, on the one hand, your data uh, principles, which is uh, the equivalent of data subjects uh, are in the GDPR framework, the person to whom the personal data 
pertains. And then you've got the data fiduciary, which is the equivalent of a data controller in Europe, um, uh, is the entity that holds this personal data and controls the personal data. Um, and, and that's essentially the entity that's, that's regulated. And in the earlier versions uh, of the draft, a consent manager was classified as a data fiduciary. But in this version, um, they haven't. That hasn't uh, been the case. In fact, they, all consent managers are uh, stated to be uh, consent managers that have to be registered with the board, uh, which sort of uh, presumes that you know the account aggregators that are currently registered with the Reserve Bank of India will also have to register themselves with the Data Protection Board. Um, and and so it it's through all of this, it's one saying that this is neither a data principle, data fiduciary or data processor. It's a, it's a new category and it's called consent manager. And that consent manager will be directly regulated uh, by the data protection board, sort of elevating it uh, to a, to a different uh, status. And that's really interesting. It's, it's to me, it allows for um, a future where I can see perhaps cross sectoral uh, data portability. Uh, so, for instance, we've already got account aggregator in the financial services sector. Those are the consent managers for finance. You could eventually have a consent manager in the health sector, as an example. Um, and then, uh, in order to uh, transfer uh, data from the uh, from the from the health sector to the to the financial sector, a, an example would be for health insurance or something like that. You could then have um, this cross-sectoral data portability that's enabled um, above the level of the financial and the health regulators, but at the data protection board uh, uh, level. And that's really interesting uh, if you think of the next stage of uh, India's DEPA uh, architecture. Absolutely. So, I mean, we were talking about portability earlier, but just to clarify, just because we don't have a right to portability doesn't mean we can't do it contractually, right? still work. Absolutely. It's just that I cannot, as a data principal, go to uh, some entity that uh, to whom I've, you know, I've consented to provide my data. My only recourse would be, under the law, um, would be to get them to delete the data. Um, if I have a contractual arrangement with them, uh, and you know, most entities that operate internationally will already have this contractual uh, this, this, this already there in their terms of service that you can take my data at any time. That's because the right to data portability is uh, available everywhere else in the world. But you know, in the in in the I guess the the rare exception where there is a there is a company that is not obliged to do that, uh, we don't have a statutory recourse uh, to fall back on to say that you are required by law to give this to me. Um, and that I think is is sort of the the sort of a miss. On a slightly related note, there's one slightly uh, strange provision in the law which I wanted some clarity on you from. There is this provision which basically gives a certain set of exemptions to government agencies to take data from another government database if it's already there without the consent of the individual concerned. Now I can I can understand the need for this if you are in the middle of an emergency or or a pandemic or a war-like situation or something like this. But surely this is not something that seems legitimate if you are actually thinking about, say, social welfare purposes, where there's actually no exigency. So why do you think this kind of a provision I mean, is either legitimate or makes sense here? Yeah, that provision, I mean, if, if we're talking about the same provision, um, that's, that's probably 7B, uh, which is in the, in the legitimate uses. Now, 7B actually, uh, limits the application, uh, of this particular right to, uh, providing b- subsidies or benefits or certificates or licenses, et cetera. And if you look at the illustration, uh, that they provide, essentially the, the illustration also talks about you know, you're, you're entitled to a particular maternity benefit, um, but there may be, uh, you know, some other, uh, or, you know, you, you enroll yourself as a pregnant woman, uh, in a hospital, say, but you, um, are entitled to a maternity benefit that you didn't know and you were not availing. Uh, in that circumstance, it could potentially be pulled out of the, uh, the sort of the health, uh, database into the maternity benefit database. So, I mean, I think in, in that sense, it is not, um, as broad as uh, we might 
uh, have envisioned where, uh, let's say, for instance, the, uh, the, the, the income tax database uh, is being, uh, data is being ported to, say, the crime database or something like that. Now that I, can, I can see that we would all have uh, some sort of uh, issues against. But, you know, in where it is being done for uh, the purposes of providing a, a benefit or a subsidy, um, you can see how the government is, in a sense, uh, trying to solve um, a fairly wicked problem in society that there are people who uh, currently are entitled to avail certain things which would make their life better, but just because they don't know it, um, are not able uh, to do that. And and I think um, this is, in a sense, a manifestation of some services that currently exist. Of course, all these services exist um, uh, using uh, consent. Um, but I think yeah, even the government would say, uh, "Look, I've got this this sort of benefit that I I'm not I, I don't understand why people are not availing of it. Uh, can I look into various other databases to see if there are other signals uh, that people are entitled to this benefit, and can I then share it with them? So you know, something along those lines. Sure, I understand that. My my only problem with this was I did not envisage consent being a binding problem in this issue. Uh, or taking consent from the individual concerned because, I mean, it's also become fairly easy to do that in most cases today. Um, The fact that this is not an emergency or an exigency actually uh, added to that. No, but I mean, I think to to reach out to the person to ask for consent, um, you would... So, you know, it's, it's sort of the reverse, right? So if I am entitled to a maternity benefit, um... Uh, I need to know that the person is pregnant in order to know that the person is entitled to maternity benefit. This is a bit of a chicken and egg kind of a thing. So, so uh, can I, um, as the maternity benefits department, reach out to all hospitals and say, you know, give me uh, information of pregnant women so that I can then reach out to them. Now, in order to do that, uh, I would need consent. And so it's it's sort of the, the it's a different agency and instrumentality that's actually looking for the data um, and how do you give that uh, entity the ability to do this? Now, it would be it would be terrible, as I said, if the police used this. But the police are not providing us a subsidy or a benefit. And so I would argue that if the police uh, tried to leverage this provision, um, that uh, that would be uh, excessive and would not be permitted under 7B. Thanks. I think that clarity is helpful. There were a couple of other provisions that struck me more specifically about... Uh, not government powers per se, but the level of unfettered discretion that uh, the government has. Uh, One of these was about um, uh, giving exemptions to any data fiduciary or class of data fiduciary from any part of the law in the first five years of the implementation of this law. Now, I don't have a problem with exempting certain industries, certain sunrise industries and so on, foreign for an initial period to help them actually implement this law. But there is actually no guidance or uh, or legislative language that would actually channel the exercise of this power. And in addition to that, there's no time limit for this exemption itself. So the law only says that you can use this power for the first five years. I think this is section 17.5 or 17.6 of the law. And... Uh, what worried me was it actually enables the government to use this power almost without any guidance, which is not to impute any any intention on on any specific government or so on, but it's just a provision that should have been better drafted. Yeah, I look, I, I agree from the from the way you're framing it that um, it would have been it would have been better um, for us to have some. Uh, guidance as to as to how this would be used, but you know, having said that, I think uh, we we you know we keep we we keep looking for uh, the guidance in the words of the statute, um, and I think um, it's it's good where it's where it's available uh, to have that guidance. Uh, it acts as a as a fetter on the state, but the fact that it's not there doesn't mean that, that there is no uh, guidance and, and no fetters. I mean, we where the the state uh, because this is, this is specifically that the state has to um, notify 
that a provision of the act uh, will not uh, apply. Uh, and in order to do that, the state is constrained by uh, the the threefold or fourfold test laid down in Puttaswamy. And so it's not like as if they can just do whatever they want. It, it can't be uh, excessive. Um, so, I mean, I would say that uh, we we do have some uh, restrictions and, and protections on the state. The fact that section, uh, that, you know, subsection five of uh, section 17 exists off of itself is not ultra-virus of anything because it's just like an enabling provision. But if we find that there is um, some kind of implementation of this, we have every right to uh, to test that against uh, the Puttaswamy uh, judgment. Uh, and then the government uh, has to show that what it's done is in conformity with uh, with that judgment. I think that the, the thinking of the government um, is, uh, as you said, you know, the one, Sunrise Industries, but perhaps also just the whole Sunrise nature of data protection. Uh, and that in some instances, uh, it is actually going to be hard. Um, uh, you know, I just take that, that, uh, data retention point that I mentioned, this automatic deletion of data. Uh, if you implement this immediately, uh, it's going to be impossible for, uh, companies. I mean, companies will be, will be violating it from day one. Um, because there's already a, a whole cottage industry around collection of data and use for telemarketing and, and things like that. And, and it, it doesn't help anyone to declare that uh, the whole country is uh, guilty of a law the moment it comes into force. So I, I, you know, I can see some of those sorts of use cases uh, for for something like this. Of course, we've got to be vigilant and we've got to just um, hold uh, the government's feet to the fire whenever they come up with any notification under this to make sure that it's not excessive, it's proportionate, it makes sort of sense. Um, and so that's our duty, you know, as um, as uh, people who are watching this and commenting on this to to basically look at that. But as as it stands right now, I would have liked it uh, to be more specific. But whenever I say something like that, I worry that um, if we specify, uh, then uh, it's impossible for us to think of every possible scenario and we'll leave things out. And then there would be some really legitimate Things that uh, need to be covered by this that can't because um, because it's been left out. Yeah, you know, so that's sort of the, the the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of a worst case scenario where you could potentially exempt certain industries from the entire law, right? Because any would include all, and you could just, I mean, uh, that's a potential. And you're right that it will probably not work that way. And I completely understand that there are. There are difficulties in guessing how you would actually need to use this provision going forward. This is it's a completely new law. Uh, the other provision which stood out and people have been talking about it is this section that enables the government to block access to information from certain uh, data fiduciaries. And there is a kind of legal process given within the section but the question for me really was, how is this related to data protection? And does it actually stand in a data protection law at all? Yeah, I know I have to agree. I was very disappointed with uh, 371B. I thought it um, uh, it had no place uh, in, in the law. It didn't exist in the previous draft. Um, and so, you know, none of us had had the opportunity to see it and comment on it. And it literally came uh, out of the blue. Um, and so, you know, I spent some time thinking about what uh, might have been uh, an appropriate type of uh, provision. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you think about it, this is a law to protect digital personal data. And so if we've got a, a website um, that is broadcasting personal data of uh, people, uh, I can see how a, a blocking order uh, in relation to that website would make some sense. So, you know, I can see that that... Uh, is an appropriate um, kind of blocking order in the context of a law like this. Uh, so, if we, you know, if the if that particular provision had that kind of a limitation to say that it would only be applied uh, to that, uh, it would make some sense for me. But you know, as it's as it's written now, uh, if you look through the statements of objects and reasons, if you look through just the the the, the parameters within which. Uh, this law has been enacted, it far exceeds that. 
um, if it's challenged, uh, I'm sorry to say, I believe that this uh, provision will be struck down. Um, it, it, uh, it's far in excess of what the government uh, should have, um, should have put in there. Yeah, and it came about as a complete surprise. It wasn't there in any of the previous drafts. None of the committees that have studied data protection in India have recommended anything like this. And it, ideally, it would belong in, say, the IT Act, which actually regulates the behavior of... And it exists. I mean, see, right now, it, they, we have blocking orders in the IT Act. I suspect that the Digital India Act that's being drafted will also have something similar. So uh, putting it in here seemed completely out of place. Um, and I, I think it will be struck down uh, if it comes up, uh, uh, if it's challenged before the court. So uh, we're nearing the end of the conversation. I had two more questions for you. One was on the issue of data localization. And there's been a lot of debate and discussion around it. And this draft basically does away with it, so to speak. So is that your interpretation of this and how do you see it? Yeah, with one exception, I think um, it allows for sectoral uh, regulators to impose you know, whatever uh, additional provisions they want. I think that uh, recognizes the fact that in the financial services sector, there are already payment localization uh, regulations and, and things like that. But in, you know, if you look at it from the 2018 draft, which is the first draft that uh, mentioned the concept of data localization, uh, through to the, you know, the, even the 2022, uh, completely revamped draft, um, that had sort of indicated that there would be a, a list of countries, but other than that, it would be uh, permitted. And I remember it was at a Carnegie event that I, uh, suggested that that list would actually be, you know, uh, sort of a blacklist as opposed to a whitelist. Um, and it looks like, uh, even my, uh, fairly, uh, optimistic, um, interpretation has been exceeded by uh, no list at all. Uh, and so it looks like um, it, yeah, there's, there's going to be a free flow of data, uh, which is, in a sense, as it is right now. Uh, so data localization was going to uh, impose a, a heavy burden on companies that have oriented their business around the way uh, things currently are. And my last question is about the implementation of this law. How do you think the government is thinking about implementing it either in one go or in a staggered manner if there are also institutions that need to be set up just a data protection board that needs to be created. So do you have any ideas on what that implementation framework is going to look like? Yeah, two, two parts to that. I think, um, you know, whenever we've spoken to the minister over the consultations, uh, his big uh, emphasis has been um, to ensure there's complete clarity around uh, the legislation. And he says that uh, when this is brought into force, uh, it will also um, you know, be accompanied by the complete list of regulations. Uh, so, you know, comprehensive regulations, um, there's a lot as people say, have been saying, uh, that are left to be prescribed uh, by regulation. And, and he kept saying that um, uh, that entire book will be uh, available. So there's that one side of it, which is uh, there's uh, a, a fair bit that's been left to delegated uh, uh, regulation and someone needs to be compiling all of that before uh, the act is actually notified and brought into force. I think that's essential because uh, certainly for some aspects, uh, there are immediate requirements uh, for clarity that can only come through uh, through the regulation. And the second aspect, of course, is the data protection board because um, there is a need uh, uh, to have, particularly in a principle-based uh, regulation like this, which is simple, then you need to have uh, some uh, institutional authority that could then uh, add color to those very simple outlines. Um, and that is the data protection board. So uh, the moment this comes into force, we're going to need to um, think through how the bare law plus the delegated regulation applies to all of the various industries uh, in the country. And we will be taking calls because there's no guidance. Um, and so you know, companies will be doing certain things. They'll be uh, in the absence of guidance, they're going to be saying, look, this is the way we are interpreting this. And people will object to that. Those objections, those complaints will have to come up before someone who will then have to say, uh, you know, yes, this is correct or this is not correct. And through that whole process, we'll start building the precedent bank that is going to shape data protection regulation in the country. So we need the data protection board uh, as well. So I think these are the two um, 
components of this, as it were, uh, and uh, uh, the the regulate the government will have to you know put this in place. Um, I think almost uh, it's almost essential that they put all of this in place uh, before uh, the act comes into force uh, and applies to all of us. Thanks a lot, Rahul. Uh, you've been a part of this process for a long time now. Do you do you have any closing comments on this bill? on this law now. I'm glad we don't get to call this a bill anymore. I know. I'm glad. Uh, it's, I'm so used to calling it the Data Protection Bill that it's going to take a bit of effort for me to change the Data Protection Act. Um, so it's going to be a mental shift for me. But, you know, I, I think, um, I think I guess the most important thing is that that whether we like it or not, this is the law. Um, and I think all of us in civil society uh, who've been or, orienting ourselves, and I don't call myself civil society, I guess I uh, all of us who are commenting on on the law um, have been orienting ourselves uh, to provide inputs as to how this could be made better. Now that time has passed. Uh, it is what it is. Um, this is what we have to work with. And so now we need to uh, you know, start working, shifting gears, as it were, uh, to start thinking about you know how we can help the government think through uh, a lot of these institutionalization, uh, operationalization uh, means. That's sort of where the intellectual uh, capabilities of this community has to shift to uh, such that uh, we can be um, of most most value. I think there's, you know, there's still a lot that can be done in that side of things. Um, so I just wish that, um, I, you know, I think <laughs> there's a lot of venting that's happening. People are, are getting it out of their system that the law is not what they wanted. And there's a lot of people, you know, leveling all sorts of allegations against the government and, uh, you know, the opposition walked out and they were very upset that there was no debate, not like quite frankly that that debate made that much of a difference. Um, so, you know, I, I think, okay, I, I, I get it that we have to get that out of our system, but then there's a lot of work that this, uh, really wonderful, uh, technology policy community in, in India that has actually literally been built, uh, from scratch around uh, this uh, five or 12-year journey, whichever way you count it, of data protection. Uh, has, yeah, and they've come up around that. And it's time for all of that intellectual horsepower to be applied uh, to a different purpose. And I hope that we can all uh, step up and uh, and do that. Certainly, that's that's where my uh, focus has, has already shifted. I, you know, I, I stopped thinking about what I can do to the law because, quite frankly, there is nothing. Uh, and now I'm focused on what what we can do in this next stage and how can we uh, help the government think through some of these actually fairly thorny things that they're going to have to decide very quickly um, as they uh, prepare the regulations and, uh, you know, constitute the board and things like that. So that's, that's really, I think, um, where I'm going to be focusing most of the rest of my time. Thank you, Rahul. That's a great note on this to end this. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.